All right, welcome back to the world's number one pro wrestling broadcast. Why, Jimmy Farrow? Well, because Jim Beam said so. Man, do you love Jim Beam as much as I do? I always loved Jim Beam, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> that is. An Let's issue. not get into that one. Should oh. I go under the table now? <laughs> <laughs> love Jim Beam. Drink up. We want to say welcome everybody on this wonderful Thursday. We have a real special guest. We'll get to him shortly. At the board is Abe. Abe uh, here on a wonderful Thursday. He's not at the desk right now. Cause That's because he's busy working he's, his his he's, production he's busy butt off. Being a working bee. Say hi, Abe. Do I have to? He's thinking about. What's going it. on, guys? Hey, like, really? hey. Yeah, <laughs> What's going a little crazy on? Crazy start. All right, so real quick. Um, yeah. Yeah. The submarine that oh. was investigating the Titanic. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Again, at the time that we were setting up this show, they were still looking for them in hopes that they could find these individuals. And uh, when I got home from work, it was nope. already said uh, that the submarine had imploded. Right. I thought we would just name some of the people who are on that submarine and show a little bit of respect. Okay. Um, I don't hope I don't hack up their names. I try oh. not to. Okay. Hamish Harding, a British explorer and private jet dealer. 58, right. chairman of Action Aviation. Okay. Shazada Dawood and Sulman Dawood. Okay. 48, uh, a member of one of Pakistan's t most prominent families. Wow. He serves as vice chairman of the board of Ingro Corporation. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that Shul Dawood was his son. Mm. Paul Henry Nargolet, French maritime explorer. Paul mm -hmm. Henry Nargaret, French Nargolet, is a director of underwater research programming. Okay. Stockton Rush, Ocean Gate CEO. Stockton Rush was confirmed as the fifth passenger. Right. And uh, they now have been announced as deceased. Jimmy Farrow. Um, can I tell you some weird conversations I heard about this today? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, somebody was saying. Well, you had a quarter, was it a quarter of a million dollars a person or something like that? Do I have this number right? You'd be close, I think, yeah. I don't know if we're getting just completely insensitive, but the, somebody was like, well, you paid a quarter of a million dollars to go look at a boat. You had money to burn like that. Oh, well. Man, that'd be rough. I think, I think those people were artists, like you're an artist. Right. Um, they sound like executives. Well, no, but they're artists, right? They're explorers, right? They're, you know, explorers. Jacques Cousteau was an explorer. Yeah, and these are explorers. They're going to look at the Titanic. Are okay. they at the level as a full-time explorer? No, I don't think so. Can I be honest? If I had the money, I would want to see the Titanic. Am I allowed to say that? For yeah. A, for would a, you fly uh, to Mars? Very simple kind of man that I am. Would you fly to Mars if possible? If I could afford it and they told me it was safe, yeah, I would like to see Mars. Sure, why not? Little Remember Patty, that Martian on the Bugs Bunny cartoon? Little Patty says his son was only 19. Oh, that's I don't awful. know if it's good news for the family, um, but awful. from what I understand, that this kind of implosion is a quick, instant. Is an instant quick. It's got to be. Which but is, wait a minute, though, isn't there like pressure and stuff? No, like? see, that's what I thought too. Okay. But from what I understand, it's like a balloon. You don't it even see it coming. Burst. Boom, done. Well, you're done then. Yeah. And you didn't even have a chance to think about it. Which is kind of. I good. think that's a yeah. Oh, that's awful. Uh, have you heard anything crazy about there, that there's two Titanics and that the real Titanic never even existed? Have you heard this crap this I week? I have not. Yeah, I've been hearing some weird, weird stuff. 
Anyway, it's absolutely tragic, one way or the other. Besides our wonderful guest today, June 24th, Big Brother star JoJo in studio. Man. That's Saturday at 11 a.m. Okay. June okay. 29th, wife of Wahoo McDaniel. We're going to be welcoming Karen McDaniel. Another beautiful lady, yep. And the week after that, uh, I've got a special surprise, not officially announced yeah, yet. Yeah, I don't see it here. But you will be very excited when you find out. I will? Oh, yes, you will. You want to, you want to pass me a note under the table or something? I'm going or... pa to give you two things and tell me if you could guess. Oh, I'm going to look like a dope. Go ahead. Don't say handkerchief. I'm no. going to be completely uh, lost. I'm going to say, could have beaten back one. Oh, God, Hold that's on. a bunch of guys. Hold on, I'm not done. Yeah. Doink the clown. Oh, no. Doink the clown. You're not going to bring in the little fellow who likes to go after my nutsack, are you? Not putting the two right, clues together. I'm not. Could have beaten Backlin. And Doink the clown? Well, you know what? Wrong clue on Backlin. Okay. Could have been Backlin. Could have been Backlin? Yes. Uh, I'm not going to guess All this. right, well, we'll move on. Yeah, we I'd like to thank to. the band that sings the, the theme hell? song for Monty Nefaro and Jimmy Farrell, along with his partner, Bart Griggs, yeah, make up the band Wisteria <clears throat> Hall. Uh-huh. Bart Man. Wisteria Hall sings such songs as In My Dreams, This Life, Not Far Behind, Here Comes the Rain. You can find their yeah, music do. on the Wisteria Hall YouTube page. Hit like and subscribe. Go to Spotify, Apple Music, Reverb Nation, download all Wisteria Hall's all? music. Yeah. Which is totally incredible. Do we, Thank you. Uh, again, are we working on a third album? Yep, if we could just get it into the schedule, we're trying. Yep, absolutely. And if you didn't know it, you are watching the world's number one pro wrestling broadcast. You could catch us on the Monty DeFaro YouTube page, the Monty DeFaro Facebook Live page, hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Anchor. The Monty DeFaro Twitch TV page. And if you're lucky enough to live in New York, mm. catch us three times weekly, channel 150. Hold on. Bless there you, you go, baby. I tried to hold it, and I couldn't do and it. And you got blessed on the air. That's good juju. Amen. Channel go. 115 every Tuesday at 9.30 and Saturday at 11 a.m. And mm -hmm. Channel 20 on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. We're over 150,000 viewers watch us weekly. No wonder the great Jim Beam chose us. That's no wonder at all. We're smoking impact every and week. And guess what? Our <laughs> guest will be in the reduced version. This is going to be a long interview. It, and it, this, Condensed. The, the cable version will have the yes. bullet points of the interview, but yes. I don't know. You might have to make it a two-parter, bro. Uh, we'll have to see what we got. And if listen, guys, really important note here. Mm. There's an, we're also on the network. We are the uh, premier show on that the network. The flagship. Right, the flagship show. Thank That's you. That's right. The Intuitive Network. Spelled I-N-2-I-T-I-V-E. Download it. It's free. Guys, I'm just telling you. It's free. Download it. Documentaries, movies, comedy. It's a mini Netflix, a startup Netflix, which is actually, to me, is better than Netflix. And they have the world's greatest pro wrestling broadcast on there. And again, guys, it's free. It costs you nothing. You're sitting at work. Hit the Intuitive Network. Play a movie. Play a video. But most importantly... Play Monty and the Farrow. Thank you. Intuitive. Get into it. We'll be right back with a friend of the show, a man, if you didn't know, you're going to know, that movies would be made out of this gentleman's story. Um, I can tell you personally, 
this is the first time I'm meeting him physically. Mm-hmm. I've spoken to him many a times. This is one incredible human being, and it's been a long time coming. Guys, if you're watching this show right now, you'll be glued. Tommy Cairo is up next. We show ECWU in a second. Ah. Manscape. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, have you tried the new equipment that's been sent? I'm afraid because it says weed whacker. <laughs> I'm scared. Maven, Manscape. What are you thinking about Love Manscape, it. dude? You Love it. it. What do you use it for? Necessity. What, what don't I use it for? Put it this way. <laughs> the only hair I have on my entire body is these eyebrows. Yeah. That oh. you see. These wow. caterpillars racing to the middle of my nose. That's it. <laughs> that is it. That's all, that's all I have. And that's all I want. That's the so brand. Manscaped there, is you, a must. We were talking before the show. There's nothing worse than just hair. Yeah. Right? Hair on a woman, hair on a man. It's just bad. Absolutely. And it's the one thing that the older I get, it starts growing more in unwanted areas. Absolutely. I hate it. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh-oh. Just going to go out there. Oh, boy. Go for it. You're doing a deed. Yes. <laughs> Again, I don't want you to have to admit this because we... As men, we try not to admit this, but if you're going to go oh, do I the know deed he, on a woman, I know would you rather have her be hairless or a little hair, racing stripe, or <laughs> racing stripe. full retro bush? <laughs> racing well, stripe. Retro bush is out. Yes, thank you. Retro bush is out. Yeah. Um, I don't mind a small, well-manicured landing strip. <laughs> Every now and then, if it's completely, and I'm talking like baby's ass bald, Mm. Then I, I start, where is that pedophilia line that I'm, that I'm, I don't, I don't wow. want to wander into that. That's very interesting. Like that. I never thought about wow. that. You're a smart dude. Holy yeah. shit. So if the landing strip is clean enough for the plane to go in smoothly, you're cool with that. If the landing strip is, has, like I said, well manicured, yeah, you yeah. can see both sides. It's not like blinking lights on both sides of that. I just don't, I don't want, <laughs> you know, I don't want the shrubbery going off into yeah. unwanted areas on that gotcha. as well. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, look but what you found. Ooh, I got to be all honest gotcha. though. Hey, the, ah. the, the older I get though, I don't. I think I don't think I can be as. Uh, <laughs> I as, found as, it. Have, I found have it. Have you ever gone down there and like just like you, she slowly brings down the underwear? Then what is retro? Just Absolutely. Retro? You're like whoa. Wow. Yeah, like I'm forty-six. Like it pops out. Do you like walk out or what do you do? No, I, try, I muster through. I muster up the <laughs> courage to get a trooper. Yeah, he's a trooper. <laughs> Got to give him an yeah, wow. Not all not all heroes wear capes. Yeah, I, there you no, go. I hear you. I, there you listen, go. Can't, I couldn't. I Super couldn't Bush. say. I couldn't say. Well, <laughs> if you have the same beliefs as Maven does, Manscaped could help you. Absolutely, weed whacker. Absolutely. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that I may have to like you know go in a room, close the door, and hang out with the weed whacker for a little while. Yeah, I think you're a retro guy, aren't you? I like 70s adult films, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, with that, Ron we're going to take a quick Batman. commercial break, and we'll be back with this wrestling icon, Maven. We will see you in a drop kick second. A uh, drop kick. All right, welcome back to the world's number one pro wrestler. How does it feel to be the world's? It feels proper. It feels correct. How about gratifying? It feels right. Of course it's gratifying. Here he is at the, at the couch, Tommy Cairo. Tommy. Thank you. How are you, buddy? I'm great. It's great to be here, to meet you guys. Uh, Jimmy and Mike, 
and uh, it was a long time coming. We've been communicating for a long time. I was I had the show going. You had for the a show on while, the channel, yeah. You know, and then things changed, and I wind up uh, having to deal with a situation that I never thought I would have to. Well, well, we're going to go, Tom, we're going to go a little reverse, right? So most people would probably start with your origins. I want to start where we are today. You drove here from New Jersey, mm -hmm. took the time out of your busy schedule. If you could, um, could you stand up and sure. maybe show the people? Yep. Let me hit the robotic activation. There you <laughs> go. Right. So if anyone could see, good there job, he is. babe. All right, all right, Tommy. So if anybody doesn't realize, Tommy now has a prosthesis leg, right? Yep. So let's go. Let's okay. tell the fans. Okay. What happened to you, Tommy Cairo, last summer to now? So um, I'm lucky enough and blessed enough to have worked hard enough between my wife and I, to finally have a little place that we could go to that we didn't have to rent out to offset the cost and all of that. And we wound up with a beautiful place in a gated community with a private beach down in Virginia. So I'm down there by myself. Uh, son is, was in school at the time. My wife's a realtor, so very hard for her to get away. So I was down there and I'm sitting on the beach and I'm still not happy because I'm a warrior. And I'm thinking, you know, my son's in school, but that's not a good enough excuse because when he, he's off of school, he's home, and even if it's only a little bit of time, I should be there. So I packed up my shit and I went home. But right before that happened, I had gone in the water. I only went into waist deep, okay? This is the Delaware Bay. I mean, I'm sorry, this is the Chesapeake Bay. Um, no different than if you go in the water in New Jersey in the summer in the heat, you got bacteria the whole nine yards. Well, I felt like, like I got stung, and I re remember being stung by grabbing the fins of a fish in Florida, and I, it was like the same feeling, like a, a numbness. So when I looked at my leg when I got out and sat on a chair before I decided to go home, it was a, a area about from the top of my knee to the inside of my groin, and it looked like some kind of state. It was just a thin outline, nothing in the middle. That, that was it. Well, you know, I... My, but you could see a line. You could see it, yes. So are you like, whoa, what is this? No. Or? No. I'm like, we all are. Yes. When you go to a doctor, dermatologist, he, he can't identify exactly what it is. Contact dermatitis. And what do you do? You put a little triple antibiotic on it and you go on your way. Mm. Well, that developed into a whole week that I had sepsis shock and didn't even know it was walking around. My wife bringing me to the emergency room. And that quick, I ended up, they had to take my legs, my toes had turned black, they had to take my leg, I have eight inches below my knee still, which gives me the mechanics of the knee. And that area that we talked about, which my wife kind of like, you know, debated, oh, I don't think you got it from, whatever it is, that thing that I got in the water developed into the largest wound. I had uh, plastic surgery on this, out of where wound back and a whole nine yards, and it hit different areas. And if you know uh, that um, pneumococcal and flesh-eating disease, which gives you the sepsis, it doesn't discriminate. Uh, it can hit you in four different areas that aren't connected to each other. So I got my foot, my toes, chopped it off. Then I had an area here and this big 
area here. On top of that, because I was down between rehab and a hospital, 74 days on my back, I wound up with a bed wound on my butt, which lasted healing-wise as long as everything else. But I think you're almost understating it, Chris. Who, us who were friends with you and people even closer to you, you were close to death. Okay, so my wife had to fill in the blanks for me. So I get ex go into the hospital, an emergency room, and um, all this just moves so quickly. Well, so, let, me, let me just ask you a question. You see this line, all of a sudden, are you seeing things happening to your leg that you're like, I no. need to go to a hospital? No. What makes you go to the My hospital? My wife. Your wife. I'm taking you to the emergency room. I don't remember that. I, a week before, I'm taking my son to youth group, and I, I said to him, I think I know what's wrong with my foot. I think I sprained my ankle. That's the last thing I remember. And my son said he heard me talking to myself in a room. I had sepsis in my system for a week. I was walking around with it. Wow. Poisoned. The doctor says that's inhuman. All right. A liver failure, kidney failure, on a ventilator. AFib, sepsis, sepsis with sepsis, shock, and psychotic episode. I told everybody I was going to kill them. I told my wife I would kill her. I told my daughter, I said, would your pastor approve this? I thought I was being committed. So I do remember bits of that when I was in recovery after surgery. I told a big guy there that I was going to come back and shoot him. I told my wife I was going to shoot her. You know, completely out of it. So I got Kevlar mitts on to not harm myself because I was violent, psychotic. Well, I'm thinking, I'm trying to rip through them with my fingernails, right? And nobody will talk to me. My family had left. No water, no food, okay? I said, you know what? I just figured out they're not trying to have me committed. This is hell. Mm -hmm. I'm in hell, okay? Then I had this vision that I was sent back to the door where you go to heaven by the devil who appeared with long fingers and this just weird. This is like, I don't know if this is like part of the psychosis or whatever, or if I almost died and I came back. Don't know. Fact of the matter is, I should have been dead. You know, 65 and still alive. So my wife gets the word that your husband may not make the, the night. So she contacts my friend, Paulie Baikow, equalizer from ECW, my, my heart, my, my top guy. And uh, she, she says, you know, they told me he may not make the night. He said, don't you realize who's laying in that bed? You've been married to him all these years. That's the fucking Iron Man. He's a tough son of a bitch. He ain't gonna die. Three days later, this doctor worked on me like a fucking animal. I wake up to an Indian doctor standing down looking at me, and I love them guys because they're so smart. And he said, all your levels are back to normal. What? I don't even know what he's talking about. Right. All that had to be filled in by my wife. So I walk walking around poisoned, should have been dead five different ways, and here I am. Thank God. Lost my leg, but it's either this or six feet up. Now, did they figure out what they think happened in the water that day? No. Uh, I somehow got the flesh-eating eating disease. Um, I believe that whatever stung me, of course, was in infected because it's in the water. Right. And it's July, and it's hot, right? So all the right conditions, and I'm a diabetic. So to... Tell you how cautious I'm being. I went back to Virginia for the first time in almost a year, okay? And I was walking. I couldn't go until I got my leg. I got my leg a week before. Was new at walking on it. 
and I had steps there I knew I had to negotiate. So I couldn't go until I knew I could walk. I got the leg. I walked up the stairs. I did all that. I got stung on my knee, on my leg, and it blew up, and it looked infected. I went right to the doctor, and I said, I ain't taking no chances. He put me on an antibiotic, and I've been treated. So this is what I have to do. You know, I was always like, what are you doing with your hands all the time with the anti, you know, whatever, antibacterial? Now I know. I don't want anything foreign getting into my body. Uh, I'll never swim in any body of water again. My tub and my shower and my shower, and that's it. You know, I'm not they taking any chances. They weren't able to determine what stung you? No. That's amazing but to me. But the shit moves so quickly. Yeah. Right? And, and he said, the fact that you walked around that long, he said, well, we're not surprised because you're alive. When I went to all three doctors right after the amputation, they treated me like I was walking on water. It's like, you don't understand. We didn't ever expect to see you in this office. And last week, I had to go to my, the guy that actually cut my leg, and I walked to him across the room and hugged him. And he said, I, man, I can't believe it. He goes, let me ask you this, Tommy. Um, you're an athlete, and we're going to get into that whole athletic background mm-hmm. from your bodybuilding to becoming a pro wrestler. Um, what kind of emotions do you feel, right? Because you're kind of getting through it, right? And mm-hmm. now you know you're going to lose a part of your body. Um, what are your emotions before it's going to happen? And then what are your emotions after it happens? Um I don't know. I just accepted it uh, 100%. And I think the reason I accepted it um, is I knew it wouldn't be that big of a challenge because I was crippled before I lost, lost my foot. I had to be carried to the table at the ECW arena at a co- convention. So this is not a far departure. All I sought to do was sit, walk short distance, sit. I'm doing that now. But at the same time, I have to try to correct my back and my hips while I'm learning how to walk, that's, that's tough. Um, but I never thought about this. Here's, here's how I can sum it up. People said to me, are you mad? Are you angry? I, because I'm a Christian, but I did, this did happen. I had a revelation. I said, this is what I thought in my head. You thought you fucking made it. Big man, Tommy Cairo, Iron Man, did everything your way against the system, and you prevailed. So guess what? I'm going to give you a little something else. To challenge you because you're still not happy. You're sitting in at the beach at your private community that you live in and you're still not happy. So I gotta give you something to come back from. Bam! I'm taking your leg. I need you to do something. I need you to figure out why I kept you. And I have figured that out. And that's a big reason why I'm here. And uh we'll speak further about that. Because I want to leave this earth having made every effort I could to help the wrestling business. Not for myself, not for my gain. And if I put the program, the whole thing together, and it just is in someone's possession for later use, and it gets used after I'm gone, hey, you know what? We don't know what to do to get this shit straightened out, but I remember Tommy Cairo put a program together to restructure pro wrestling. Let's look at it. Oh, you know what? This sounds great. Let's try it. Bam. Because, you know, I've been around this since I'm a kid. I was a fan at at five years old, uh, there's a picture of me in Florida at the pool at two years old. In my hand is a bodybuilder magazine that you can see with the guy on the front and a lat spread 
And that's how I won some of my competitions. That was my, 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 my signature pose. So the, plant, the seed was planted early. Would, but, you, would you say that you were toughened up by wrestling, or were you just tough to begin with and wrestling was the perfect thing for you? Wrestling wasn't tough enough for me. There you go. But I worked with guys like Manny Fernandez, so I got my fix, okay, because we beat the shit out of each other. Leave nothing to chance. No phantom strikes or anything that I got to sell that I can't feel. I could sell it because it's real. I got hit with it by a chair when he did the flying burrito. He had a chair in his hand. So the cameras came in. It was some local, and my head, the bump on my head grew as they were talking to me to the size of a freaking baseball on my head. So they were like, this is real, folks, you know. Um, but I want to I tell you this. So people wanted to know if I was mad or angry about this, having to be in this, this situation. So I said, well, at night, after I take my leg off and I look over at it, just like in the morning before I put it on, I look over at it. I don't look at it and say, do you believe this shit? My leg is gone. I got to wear this fucking thing? No. I look over at it as my passport, as my vehicle, okay? Because I barely walked before. I'm going to learn to walk better, fix my back, and walk with this and have no issues. But I tell you what I won't do. I won't hide it. I will pro probably never wear long pants again because it's a badge of honor. And I don't, somebody said, well, I heard you can get to the point where nobody will even notice that you have it. That's not going to help. I can't help anybody. It, it, they got to see it so they can approach me if it's something that they want to talk. Listen, I, you know, my brother just lost his leg. Or I, another amputee that's, you know, got it done early, you know, later than me. I got some experience there. I could tell you the pitfalls. I could tell you the attitude you have to acquire. But no, I'm, I have no ill will and no, uh, you know, feeling sorry for myself and, and being mad. Being mad has to be over because I've been mad most of my life. As many of us are, and we're going to get to that uh, real quick before you get to the next question, Farrell. Little Patty just wants to know, how long ago did this happen to you? Uh, the amputation was in September of last year. And that would, we'd say August was the bite, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, July was the bite. Gotcha. Mike, if you don't mind, I want to go a little off script. I, I, Tommy, can you give any advice to those people who struggle with faith? Because I'm finding you extremely inspirational. Is there anything you would say to people who are struggling with faith? I'll tell you this. I know it's amazing the position I'm in. And I've done everything in my power to take myself out over the years. And the fact that I can pray about something, and unbelievably, some of it happens like before you can even think about it. Bam! It's, it's solved. So what I say to people who don't have faith, and you're looking for something in your life to have, you know, a purpose, try it. Pray. Pray, wait, believe, and wait. Pray, believe, believe, believe and, wait. and wait. But you have to be uh, able to pick up on the uh, blessings because they may not come in the exact form that you expect. You, uh, right. You may have yeah. to use what he gave you to get to that as a vehicle. Right. But he will give you what you need to accomplish that. That's beautiful. Okay, so... Let's go to the beginning. Tell us about your mom and dad and growing up in New Jersey. Okay. Very easy. Um, Italian-American neighborhood. 
Um, everybody except for the Giordano's who were on waste disposal had those small Cape Cods that they bought for $14,000 in 1971. Gotcha. Okay. And what happened was my group was named the Cellar Dwellers. And why? The Italian families that had the oldest child was a son. As soon as the new kids came along, the son ended up in the basement because there was no more room. And they had to put something in the attic. So my parents did that. My two sisters went up there. There was only two bedrooms. And they threw me downstairs when they wanted the second bedroom for a family a TV room. Right. And I was fine with that because I would throw up in the sink and pee in the trap when I would come home from my exploits of bouncing and so on and so forth. Sure. Side door entrance, sneak girls down. My father saw many girls coming up the steps as he was going down to get his work clothes in the morning. So that's, we were, you know, all relegated to the cellars. And I'm thinking on it now, it wasn't, the, I had a girl come down in the winter and she said, you can see your breath down here. So like, <laughs> I put a little heater up one day. My father was like, that uses a lot of power. <laughs> you know, I had bad, bad hay fever. My father made me pull the weeds. Okay. I didn't like heights. He put me on the high side of the house. We were on a hill. Paint the house. Shaking up there. There was no affection, no love. My mother was a maniac, screaming maniac. It's funny how years later, I really held my father responsible because he was gone Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Jim, Thursday, Kiwanis. So he left us with her because he didn't want to deal with it. So in the end, I didn't blame my mother and I, you know, I didn't have any ill will because once I had to go on some medication to calm myself, uh, I, you know, turned her on to the idea of maybe going to seek some help. Look, back in the day, mother's a little helper. She didn't have that. Knowing that once she took it, it really made a difference, I couldn't hold it against her because I suffered from the same thing. I, I held my father responsible because he left us there. Uh, she would hit. She would... Um, Holler from her pillow, muffled sound. Put that orange juice away. Like she, she knew you were drinking. Orange juice was a big deal. It was only for breakfast, and you can only have a little. In my house, because of that, you can have unlimited fucking orange juice. <laughs> Un unfortunately, nobody really likes it in my house. But I tried to undo some of the things that were done to me. Well, let's, let's stick with mom a little bit first. Was mom physically abusive towards you? Yes. And your sisters? No. Just you? Never. Just me. Did that make you feel like she hated you? Well, she tried to smother me. So, um, I just think she was out of control. I don't think she could control her emotions. And I must have been a handful. I wasn't a bad kid, but I was, you know, very active. Um, Not worthy of smothering. No. No. I, I brought that up to her uh, years ago, and she just freaked out. Denied it. You don't forget that. So later on in years, I was getting some counseling, and I tried to get to the root of my claustrophobia. Well, my mother tried to smother me. My father's best friend held me in the corner of the pool underwater, and my cousins held my feet in my hands and tried to pour salt into my eyes. Mm. I used to get these um, nightmares that these puffy white things were closing in on me. Never connected it. Never put it together. So as we get into your life, we could see where the start of some of your problems were coming, stemmed from your mom and dad. What, what, what did dad do to you? Dad, um, 
when I was eager as a child to help, would never let me. And then I resented it when he wanted me later on to do stuff. Um, I was like, you didn't give a shit about me when I was a kid. That you could have let me make a couple strokes with the paintbrush. All I remember is him with a cigarette in his mouth with the one eye closed from the smoke. With neglect, we called it, on the end of the thing, hanging off. And he would work. And I remember him getting up and hitting his head on a shelf that he had put up. And just like freaking out, you know, over nothing. Did you ever go to dad and say... Do you know what was going on between me and mom and you, you, you let this happen? Did you ever have that conversation? No. No, I didn't. He was only physical with me twice. Once when I cut uh, class and I don't know what the other time was. I got caught smoking cigarettes. Um, I mean, I, he hit me. I, I, I saw stars. Um, but no, my, my, my father just, just, he evaded the situation. We were le left with it. I, my sisters were okay. Um, one sister was so scared, my wife, my mother couldn't find any knives and she went up and somehow she was cleaning, went under the bed and there was like 15 knives under the bed. Mm. So I don't know what she dealt with. I think she, we had one sister that was the star out of the three of us. That was the uh, middle, my younger, just younger than me. Then my sister, Laura, who suffered in a different way. She suffered from neglect. Okay. My sister was Bonnie was like the star. Um, Come to, you know, find out that, you know, later on she said some things that just pushed me away. When I uh, was closing on my house in Virginia, I showed my brother-in-law the picture. And his question was, is that yours now? And I know enough to know him. I read through it. It's like, well, it could still get denied. He could still lose it. He may not get it. How's he going to get it? How does he have that? You know, and we don't. Mm. That that's not instead of like, hey, I'd love to figure out how you did it. What'd you do? Well, I did this with the mortgage and I refined. You know, I could tell you because I don't make so no great amount of money that you know it, it was easy. I used my head, and when nobody could find a way to make it work, the realtor, I said, do this, and they said, yeah, that's it. That's the answer. And it was rebuy my current house for what I have left on it, which is only less than ten years. Right, and take no money and just put it all together. I ended up with a second property at the number that I said would be feasible. If I could do something for 700 a month, and that's what it is. My insurance and my taxes down there are 800 a year, mm. two and a half blocks away from the beach. Somebody said, Well, that's where you got stung. Jersey's the same thing. A guy got stung in a Barnegat Bay or get it, got cut on a trap, got infected. It took all four. Everything, two arms and two legs. Mm. That's all. The guy's got nothing. Like, I'm a. That's a recipe for a noose. Like, Ooh. I made it through this, but I, I wouldn't make it through that. That's a tough one. Is mom and dad still with us? No, they. I lost them both. Not just during all of this craziness. I lost them both. Wow. And two cousins. One who was just retired walked out to get his mail. Got run down by an elderly man. S strange question on my part, mom and. Dad passed, you're going through what you're going through. What are your emotions on that? Are you indifferent? Regarding my parents? Yes. I'll put it this way. They were so insignificant in adding to my kids' lives, life or my life, that it's just like I haven't seen them. Like, they're not dead. I just, I haven't seen them. Because that was the norm. It wasn't, we didn't see them all that much. And they didn't, they didn't do anything to you know, foster a relationship, never said, let me come and pick up the kids, take them for the day. Never, you know, I could ask them and, and maybe get them to, to help me out, but it was never 
was always unsolicited, you know. Do you think that the lack of uh, support and emotional love from your family might have gravitated you even closer to your relationship with God? Oh, because, yes, without a doubt. When my mother would go to work at a place called National Yeast in Belleville, she would leave me on Fairway Avenue with my grandmother. And my, I always just putz around, do stuff, go outside, never had any trouble, deliver old newspapers to the, to the, you know, the, the neighborhood. And uh, so my mother would come and pick me up, and she would always ask, how was he? And the answer would always be the same. He was as good as gold. And that stuck in my head, and I knew I, I, I was connected to God. I knew I was a child of God. I knew there was that about me. That was something special about me, which kept me, that covered me when things were horrible. I always had that to fall back on. How about bodybuilding? Not to switch gears so quickly, but when did you decide to get into bodybuilding? Was it when you, the picture of you at the two years old with the magazine in your hand? Or uh, I mean, like yeah, that was the seed. Did you see the picture of me, real skinny, lifting and weight, weights over my head, black and white? I think they're in there. They'll, 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 they'll probably around. be up there. Yep. Okay, so uh, in my town, we had an Olympic champion by the name of Phil Grappoli. Competed in the Olympics. He won all the stuff in the United States, but of course, you know, didn't do great in the Olympics. The good in the world championships and all the national stuff. His name was Phil Grappaldi. So because of him, we had a free gym in my town. It was in the stadium. So the stadium's got the back is like this, the front's like this, where all the bleachers are. And underneath, there's some space. Well, that's where our gym was. It was a hole. It was no, really, uh, the floor had holes in it. There was uh, gutters on the inside to catch the water. Uh, there was no, there were no mirrors or anything like that. And almost everything was plate loaded or barbells or dumbbells. Mm. That was it. And I remember uh, sitting in a parking lot at a high school, looking across the field at the stadium where I was going to be tonight in the gym. And this kid's in my ear about a party or a dance. He goes, did you hear me? I said, what? He goes, are you going to the dance tonight? I said, what dance? He goes, right here tonight, there's a dance. It's every Friday. I go, bro, you know where I'll be? Up there in the stadium lifting weights. And I was so in love with it and so proud of it that when they took a picture for the local newspaper of the members of the, the gym, it was me and the young kid across the street, Tony Costelli. They had a barbell at our feet and all the guys standing up. And we were smaller, so we kneeled down and we had our hands on the bar. Like, I got my hand on this, man. Like, it was amazing. So I was schooled and brought into the world of Olympic-style weightlifting, which was in competition, the clean and jerk and the snatch. And years ago, they had the press, too. But they determined by the 72 Olympics, they eliminated the press because it was so similar to the jerk and it was hard to judge. Guys were bending their back. Through. So I competed, actually, before when, when the press was still in. I was on an Olympic lifting platform at 12 years old. 12, 13, 14. Bro, if you know the weights I was at, I think at 14, I was like 114-pound class lifting these big weights. And then uh, I got sent to Oklahoma from the town. The good friend of mine, Renee, who's no longer with us, the uh, Kiwanis and the Rotary Club paid for our trip. And we went out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I got a bronze medal. But what was happening was I was a big uh, bodybuilding fan. And I didn't like the way the Olympic lifting training made your body look. It gave you big traps, big triceps, not so big biceps. Big thighs, you know, you wear a pair of pants, your waist will be all cinched up and the pants will be skin tight on the legs. So I didn't like that. It wasn't balanced and I always loved bodybuilding. 
So once that I, I left, uh, you know, uh, weightlifting, 1982, I'm in the audience of the Mr. New Jersey contest and what they call the pre-judging, which is in the daytime, and then at night is the big show. That's where the, everything is judged. You, they already know where you're placed by the time the night right, show by comes. by the time the real show right? comes, yeah. So I'm sitting there. We smuggled beers in and everything. I'm still working out. I'm starting to use a bodybuilder. So I, I seen a kid come out, Gerard. Gerard was his name. And I go, he placed like fourth. I go, I know him, and I could beat him right now with this body. They're like, yeah, you're sitting. I said, I'm coming here next year, and I'm going to fucking go in this and win the Mr. New Jersey. They're like, you're sitting here drinking beers. You never competed in bodybuilding, and you're going to win the most prestigious? I said, yes. Started on my quest, trained with blinders on. All the other gyms had guys that they, you know, locally that were going in, and we would travel to the local gyms to work out this place had better leg equipment we go there and i used to make the rounds and there's all this scuttlebutt going on right i even went to see a guy to help me out and he had a guy there that he was training that was going in and when i saw the guy i'm like he looks like fucking hercules he's like three inches shorter than me and the same body weight fast forward to the mr new jersey gus salerno was one of the judges and i'm after my routine i came out to watch the other guys and he goes, you know you're going to win this, right? I go, don't even fuck around, bro. I go, I'm be lucky if I get a trophy. And I watched the kid pose, who was my main competition, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to beat this guy. So comes time for the awards. Fifth place from Stowe's Gym, blah, blah, blah. Fourth place from Bodybuilding Emporium, so, so, and so. Third place from New York, New York uh, Metropolitan Area, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, uh, second place, and they didn't mention my name. Mm. And still, I'm standing there. I'm not understanding. And in first place from Giordano's gym, Tommy Cairo. And I'm like, I'm looking. And they're like, go. They push me. <laughs> I go out, and my friend was running the music and everything. So he waited until played my music, you know, and I got awarded. Be 35 of the best guys in the state, some of them returning multiple years in a row just to crack the top five. And the best part about this is I was supposed to be a light heavyweight and I was going to a place called the Here Institute where they dunk you and they do your, your basal metabolic rate. And he said, all right, at 186 pounds, you'll be safe. If you go below that, you're going to start infringing on 3% that's uh, necessary for normal body functions. You start going below that, anything can happen. So I get down to that 186. He tells me, you're good to go. Then I find out that a guy by the name of Casey Kachark, who had eight years training and competing experience on me, trying to re-qualify to go into nationals, coming to the Mr. New Jersey last minute. I'm like, I can't beat him. And I don't know if I could beat anybody who's second to him. So I'm dropping down to 176. Like, how are you going to do that? In the sauna, out of the sauna. Eat a little, try to pee. Pee, the whole thing. I had a, a weigh in, and I weighed like a, you know, a quarter pound over, I did what I used to do in wrestling. I went in the showers with a fucking plastic bag on, put everything on hot, sweated it out, spit, cut my nails, do whatever, right? I get back, thing goes right in the middle. I make the class. That's why I won. I was superior in, in my conditioning, like ripped. And you couldn't deny me because when you saw that guy pose by himself, you're like, wow. But then when you saw me, you were like, well, that's the fucking anatomy chart mm. right there. So if the judging criteria is 
doing the right thing, you're going to win. So I always envisioned, like, you know, pumping iron, right? I always envisioned, like, you with your father, like Ferrigno was with his father. Was. was your father involved in your wrestling? Yes. So ha- so does this bond you then? This uh, Not wrestling, I'm sorry, bodybuilding. This bonds you two together? Um, well, that's a good question. The, uh, with the Olympic lifting, he didn't train me. And then the bodybuilding, um, he was all for it. It was the wrestling that he didn't get behind until the guys at work were saying, are you going to the Robert Treat Hotel to see your kid tonight? And he's like, what? It's like, yeah, he's scheduled to wrestle and we're all going, you know. So when other people, you know, like, you know, extolled my virtues, then he got on board. You know what I mean? And he couldn't deny me, but I have a picture of me and the guy who placed ahead of me because of politics. At the Mr. America in 1985, my lower back is like two slabs. And it's a daisy chain, they call it. Uh, my father's, uh, uh, t- you know, uh, put my oil on, and I'm putting the oil on the guy in front of me. So I put that up to say who's got the superior, I mean, the, from the back you could see. And I had him from the front too. But yes, that was my father. <clears throat> was there through all of that. Flew out to the Miss of America. I had a girl with me. He left, you know. He was whatever. My father would follow me home, uh, you know, in Newark. When I lived in Newark. Um, I had a girl with me, you know, he knew everything I did. He showed up at every uh, club that I worked in to make sure, you know, I was safe and he knew what the surroundings were like. Um, So, yes, he did. Um, But if I had not done anything that made him proud, I don't think I would have had his support. You know, I mean, all I remember him saying is, you don't stick with anything. And honestly, everything I've ever achieved was done with people who told me, how are you going to do that? Everybody wants to go to Japan. How are you going to go to Japan? When? Everybody wants to win in bodybuilding. How are you going to do that? The kid in the gym that doesn't compete looks better than you. Did it. I'm better. He's got no background. I got it all. So, I mean, I can't be denied it. I'm in in many arenas, and that's why, like, tomorrow night, you know, I'm writing a tribute to my brother-in-law, Grandfather, brother-in-law, uncle, me, all in a union. I got to write him a tribute. And, you know, uh, I forgot my point. Damn. Um, Anyway, you know. uh, Where do you get all this confidence from? Because it certainly wasn't your parents who was installing this. Where does this come from? Having to look at what you accomplished. They say when you have feelings of uh, uselessness and so on and so forth, logically, you have to look at your life for real, and if it doesn't line up with wh- how you feel, you got to rethink your whole thing. It's like, you did all of this. You know what helped me out of the, the funk I was in? I was sick for 90 days, what I think was COVID. I didn't get the shot. I wouldn't. And you know, I was putting up all my stuff in my room, mm-hmm. my man cave. Every day when I got done, I sat on the edge of the bed, and I looked at what I had done, and I said, geez, this is, like, unbelievable. It's like a roller coaster ride of a kaleidoscope and a vortex, all in one, circus-like, you know, the whole nine yards, athletic, you know, overcoming obstacles all along the way. And I always did everything with that, okay, I can't do it. There was, and everything I did, there was always somebody. who told, And it was usually somebody close to me who mm. told me I couldn't do it. And that stings even more. Makes you want to do it. I'm going to do it even there if I go. don't want to. But the, you, you know, we're, we're going to get into there it more. Go. But the one thing that happens seems that you you force yourself an achievement and then you destroyed it. 
Could you be. went out of your way to destroy it, and we'll get into it. Well, let me let me just tell you this, uh, so you get an idea. So uh, I'm 17 years old, and I live across the street from the high school, so I don't have to drive. But I have a buddy, my best friend that I competed with, that's no longer with us, who lived across town. He had a custom S, it was called. It was a Pontiac. And he would pick me up every day, and we would go get coffee, and then go to school. Get high, of course. Well, at first I didn't. I wasn't smoking pot, wasn't doing any drugs. I did a little drinking at, you know, your friend's house. This week, your parents' liquor closet. Next week, mine. Mix everything, get sick. Be slobbering on each other. I called you an asshole. I'm sorry. You know, went through all of that. And I would not do any drugs. So every day he would pick, pull up and he'd open up his ashtray and it'd be four or five green joints. Remember the reefer roller papers, they were green. And I say, no, nah, no thanks. So this one particular day, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm, my mother's screaming from the pillow. And what I would do to counteract it, I couldn't scream at her out loud. So I would go like this. Ah, I hate you. I fucking hate you. And I left the, the house like that, and I got in the car, and he opened up that ashtray, and I fucking grabbed a joint, and I lit it up. And I've done other things which I don't do anymore, but pot has been in my life since I'm 17. I quit for one year, lest we be persecuted any further. We've been hiding, yep. shucking and jiving Preach. for years. Preach. Okay? Yep. Leave us the fuck alone. Yeah. You're an alcoholic. You sat in my yard and drank three fingers of whiskey. Thank you. And when you asked me how I deal with my pain, and I said marijuana, you freaked out. Yeah. I said, yeah. you got some nerve. I yep. said, you're going to drive my street now drunk. You alcoholics are all the well, same. I'm going to have to disagree with you there because whiskey. I love you. Whiskey's, anyway. whiskey's very good for you, especially. <laughs> whiskey's a great for you, listen, especially Jim, Jim Beam. Yeah, listen, <laughs> listen, that's listen. right. And you're not an alcoholic if you drink lots of Jim Beam. That's you're correct. just a whiskey appreciator. But well, as you were saying, Mr. Cairo. Control at the, uh, the, the graduation trip that we went to, all the alcoholics got caught with shit and were banished to their room, couldn't do anything. If they had learned the fine art of balance, little Jim Beam, yeah. a little doobie, we were a little quiet. healthy dinner. Yep. I mean, what are we talking here? Listen, you know, somebody said this. You could put 100 balance. people in the room yeah. that don't know each other and start serving alcohol. Right. Look, likely somebody could die. <laughs> put the same amount of potheads, they'll be taking selfies together. Everything's mm -hmm. cool. And that's the way it is. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to be persecuted anymore. I, I agree with wife, that. I do agree don't with that. Don't ever say to me again, it smells. Right. I get tired of getting you wine. I got to go out and get your wine, but you got a problem with my weed. Okay? There's something wrong there. <laughs> All right. Tell me where you want me to go. <laughs> no, We're just having a little joke about something. I totally... One million percent agree with you. However, I will say this, and it's ironic, but when we first met, what did we bond over? The Jim Beam bottle in my parents' closet. That is wow. correct. Wow, how, how apropos. Correct. So correct. we became friends that way, and I had other friends who became friends with the green rolling papers. So. Did you drink right out of that big bottle? Absolutely. You know what? This, you know the thing we got around my people? Yeah. Bop, bop, bop. That's the, the, the noise that's made. By the air. Yeah. Pop, 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 pop. There you go. That's, yeah, a, you that's, a, lovely, pop, pop. that's a lovely sound, by the way. Yeah. So, after all, this is somewhat a wrestling show. Let's ask, what made you decide to get into pro wrestling after the bodybuilding deal? All right. So, when I was a kid, my uncle was a wrestling fan, and I would watch it on TV from Washington, D.C., Ray Morgan, big heavyweight wrestling from Washington. And I, you know, back then you had, like, guys 
that I didn't know until later that really were mid-card guys, but to me, I saw them as the stars. He had Bull Ortega, TNT Tank Morgan, you know, uh, King Curtis uh, uh, and, and, and Baron Cicluna, who became a good friend of mine. So you had all these guys, and this is what happened. One day, it was a tag team match they had announced, Bruno's kayfabe cousin, which was Antonio Pugliese, a.k.a. Tony Parisi, a tag team against Baron Cicluna, okay? So come time for the match, they announce Pugliese. Pugliese comes out, and he's in the ring with the heels. They announce Bruno, no Bruno. Then the guy is handed a note, and he says, well, folks, I'm sorry to say, Bruno has missed his connection, and he won't be here tonight. So now everybody's like, well, what's going to happen? The heels start beating down Pugliese, put the boots to him. All of a sudden, Ray Morgan, what? Oh, my God, it's Bruno. Bruno comes in with, like, his shirt open, uh, something hanging out of his suitcase. Yep. His tie's down. He drops his suitcase. He gets in the ring. They're back to back. They fight off the heels. I'm screaming. My mother comes running in the, ring, in, in the, ring, in the room. What's ha what, what happened? Bruno. She goes, my God, you're driving me nuts. Now, I'll give her this credit. <laughs> She, she didn't said, say, wait I, a minute, is that a glass of orange juice next to you? Yeah. <laughs> I told you no orange Put it juice. back. Put it back. There's a funnel in the drawer. Go ahead, There's a funnel in the drawer. And then clean the funnel when you're done. <sighs> so uh, she did a good thing. She said, let me get a hold of your uncle, and I'm going to let him take you to the matches. There you go. I go to Newark Armory, 10 years old. Wow. Now, how I know it was uh, 68, I figured it out by looking at in the back of the wrestling magazines, they have pictures of the covers of past issues. Mm -hmm. Well, at the show being sold that night was a magazine, and it said on it, it had Brower, uh, Brower's opponent all bleeding. It said, so-and-so uh, signs Brower's death certificate in hot blood. And I would have mic would have, what do you call it, a magnifying glass. I found it, and it said, you know, February 19, you know, 68. I'm like... Holy shit, okay, that was it. But I was 10 years old. Uh, Bruno, I don't remember who he wrestled. Um, and after it was over, my uncle, who was all 5'4", puts me on his shoulder. And as Bruno's exiting, I pat him on the back. Mm. And I guess that was around his you know, level, being on my uncle's shoulder. And I swore that sweat flew on my magazine from Bruno. So I was hooked. Bruno hooked me. There's no doubt about it. So um, fast forward, I remember the first time I took the V... VHS and stopped it where I could see Bruno with the blade when Koloff had him in a corner and his boot on Bruno's chest Bruno decided to get color I don't know why what would he didn't hit the post or anything but he was trying to put Koloff's boot replace it on his head so they wouldn't see him it was so ridiculous but nobody knew you know <laughs> they were cheering for Bruno they didn't know and those people were rabid they were and you know they repeated the same thing with, with, with Pedro, who drew almost just as well because of the Puerto Rican demographic, and also the Italians were on board. But that made me, you know, my uncle bringing me to those matches just solidified. Then I started going locally to the matches. I met Gary Capetta, who said to me, uh, I was hanging around waiting for the ring truck because I knew that they would come early. And he goes, what are you, what are you doing, guys? I said, I'm waiting for the ring truck, and whoever shows up, Oh, you guys are fans. I said, yeah, Gary. Oh, you know me. Of course. You do all the commentary. He said, I'll tell you what. You got a, one friend that likes wrestling? I said, yeah. He goes, come back and meet me at this. I'll be at this door, and I'll let you, I'll let you in. Let me in through the locker room mm. to get to the auditorium. And it was like my high school, you know. 
I was like, this is so cool. Hey, guys. And I, I knew enough to just walk. And, you know, it was like I had seen when Freddie Blassie held the door open for me at South Mountain Arena when I changed my shift when I worked there. Okay? And, and held up at his Halliburton. And there's those benches in the hallway where you put your skates on, rubber floor. And he put his foot up and he held the door open. I looked in and it was exactly how it used to be. Guys in their boxers, smoking cigars, playing, you know, uh, cards, maybe drinking some beer. That was it. And that's all I wanted to know because I already knew it was a work. I didn't care about seeing the matches because if I go to two matches locally, the two first guys, the opener, the, the curtain jerkers, they did the same match. They just switched the ending. So I'm like, I don't care. So that's when I stood up and went up in the stands and I knew there was a void between the curtain if you went up on top. Mm -hmm. Nobody went up there because there wasn't enough people to fill it. They were all down close. Right. Johnny Roz is standing down there. I holler down, Jabaruk. He fucking looks up at me in shock and then he smart cracks the smile. Nobody knew he was Jabaruk. Right. But I bought so many magazines. One report was Sunnyside Gardens and the other one was where he was a star. In Los Angeles. Like Cow Palace or something. No, no. It was Olympic Auditorium. Olympic Auditorium. There you go. So you, so you, you become this huge wrestling fan. You know all the inside stuff, right? Off these magazines. So when, at what point are you like, I'm done with bodybuilding. I'm going to make a run at becoming a pro wrestler. Easy question. Uh, I got done with the Mr. America in 1985. Uh, and that's when I started, like, looking around and thinking, what could I do? And then... I'm not sure if 86 had hit when I actually broke in, but it was right around that time. So what had happened was I saw an article about the Eastern Wrestling Alliance, and they were, gonna, they were, they were located in Seawarren, New Jersey. Said, Let me take a shot. Because in the old days, I used to look at the clips that were advertising wrestling that they would print, and I would call the numbers just to say, what's the card this week, and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So I said, let me take a shot. I called information when you used to do that. I said, can you give me the, the address, the number of e EWA and C. Warren? They gave me the number. Call the number, somebody answered. you like it shot. I'm like, wow. <laughs> they blew me off so quickly. I was like, all right, fuck them. I found out when they were running a show at the Wet Banana Sports Complex, which unbeknownst to me at the time is owned by Gary Capetta's family at the, um, not sure where it appeared, the, the, pier that, the name of the pier that it was on, mm -hmm. but he had this, the, uh, Ted Petty's, I didn't know at the time, ring set up for these shows they were running. So in the old, in the old days, how I broke into the business was I had, I'll tell you the people maybe later, but one of the key people was, you know, Gary. And when uh, Tom Ferdini came around when I was training, I, hey, kid, come over here. I'm in the ring working out. I said, what? He goes, take this number and call me next week. I'll give you the directions. I said, to where? East Lyme, Connecticut. I said, for what? He goes, would you get hit in the head already? You're going to wrestle. I go, I'm in two weeks in training. He goes, I already watched you. You come up to East Lyme, Connecticut. I'm like, now I got to get gear. I don't have any gear. But you got the look. He could tell you got I'm, the look. Just came off to Mr. Now, America. Real quick, we'll keep going. But you, you quit bodybuilding. Now you got to tell your dad, which he loves, right? He's so into you bodybuilding. Uh-oh. Hey, I'm done, dad. I think I'm going to pro wrestling. Dad oh, says what? Oh, boy. Yes, the only thing that saved me with that was he had would once in a while watch some of it with me, and he knew that these people were something special. So I think in the back of his mind, he knew he probably wouldn't have a problem with it if I was successful. Right. Okay, that he could brag about me. Oh, boy. But anyway, uh, what happened was 
so Gary, knowing that I need, he goes, are you all right? You know, I said, Gary, I don't know. I don't have no gear. He goes, and I really don't have the money. I said, I'll be honest with you. He said, uh, no problem. He gave me a $100 bill and the hmm. uh, address Gary. or phone number to B&A Boot Shop, Paris, Arkansas. They're the only ones that really made boots back then. Take a piece of paper, trace your bare foot, and send it to them with $100. They'll send you the boots. And while you're at it, call K&H. You know who that was? Mm -mm. Carl and Hildegard. They made all the wrestling gear back then. Everybody got their trunks from them. I called them. I got the measurements. They sent me the trunks. I got everything just before the show. So I go up to East Lime, Connecticut. Hold on. You yeah. get the outfit. You put it on. I'm sure you're in the mirror, right? You got the boots, got yeah. the trunks. Yeah. Put it on. What are you thinking? I'm thinking. I'm I wrestling. feel like this is normal. I've there always been used to being in front of people. Yeah. I know I can do this shit. Okay. A guy who's a promoter picked me to go there and work for him after only two weeks in training. Here's what I knew: to listen. And always anybody that I worked with in the beginning, that was what they said. He, he listened well. That's when the healer used to call a match. You know, mm. in the ring. No pre-plan. If you approach those guys in the locker room to go over stuff, they say, stay the fuck on the other side. We're not going to talk all that, try to remember shit. That's too much of a burden, you know. So anyway, um, so what I did was tell you what happened was I called that number. They blew me off. But when I went there to the show, I'm standing in a corner, what they call the block pose, like this. And I'm recently off to 85 Mr. America, now filled out and blown up. Mm -hmm. And the guy says, wow, he goes, you got, you look good. You got some physique. Did you ever think about getting into the wrestling business? I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I called somebody. And they blew me off. He goes, who'd you call? I go, you. He goes, oh, you know, we don't know, you know. It's a closed business, and we didn't know what you look like. I said, oh, it's, you know, it's like a different story now, you know. But EWA was uh, De Dennis and Murdy Galam and one other guy, Jimmy Ryan. And so they said to me, all right, well, uh, come down. No, so I'm at the show, and he approaches, approaches me, and he says, you think, would you think you might be interested in training? I said, yes. I said, but if it's anybody here that I saw wrestle, that's doing the training, because I knew they did that a lot, except for the one guy in the mask. I said, I think I could probably teach them. I got martial arts experience, amateur wrestling experience. I'm a bodybuilder. You see my body. I can already do this stuff. He goes, well, as a matter of fact, it is. It's Ted Petty. And that's how I met Teddy. Mm. And he started training me. And already, like, I was ready to, to go um, better than a lot of guys that were already working. Real quick, because I want to keep going yes. on with this. but. Just touch on Ted Petty. Was he really the toughest guy you ever met? Nobody. I, uh, I'll talk about this. Uh, and by the way, Ted Petty, for people who may not know, was Rocco Rock. Rocco Rock. He was Cheetah Kid. Yep. He was in a ta We were tag team partners, and there's pictures of that. He was Antonina Rocca Jr., and I was Mr. New Jersey. We had the red trunks. We were similar in height and build. We, uh, we loved everything. All the same, you know, type of thing. We loved the business. And... He was a blessing because I lived off of that short time I had with him. He sent me and a guy by the name of Davey G, who used to work for the Morton Downey Show, on a road to go up into New England, where I won the IWA Junior Heavyweight title. Met, the, met a kid named Brian Walsh. was a great inspiration and helped me out tremendously. We did a loop up there. Set up the ring, go back to the hotel, 
wrestle, tear the ring down, and decide, do we start our trip back or go back to the hotel and start it? So we were on a, a schedule, and it was like a four-day, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it was a lot of work, but we tried to set up the ring early so we could work out. But Ted Petty was one of the he true real badasses, deal. right? A real deal, boxer, uh, shooter, amateur wrestler, and trained with a guy by the name of Bobby Bold Eagle. I forget Bobby's real name, it escapes me, who helped work, train me, worked under the mask in Japan and internationally when nobody was doing it as Panther and put me over by Teddy's recommendation after a very short time. Uh, and he's just sent the text that has that article about me facing him for the Junior Heavyweight mm -hmm. Championship. And he said, you worked hard and you always did a good job. I had no problem. So I came up with those guys, you know, Pete Reeves, who was a, a bit, you know, low-card guy, jobber, was, uh, his aunt was my mother's best friend. So when I found that out, every time I saw his car, I'd run across the street and bust his balls. Uh, you know, Gary Capetta, you know, all these people I met young in my life. So that when I started showing up as, you know, a worker and they were around, they were like, oh, hey, that's that kid. You were only a kid. Mike Cicluna, right. you know. I got so close with, with uh, Dick Worley. Dick you know, Worley. And one of the best the compliments man. was when he met my wife, and she, he looked at her and he goes, you're married to this guy? She goes, yeah. <laughs> he looks at me, he looks at her, and he goes, my condolences. <laughs> and do you know that went right to my heart? Because that means more to me right. than anything. And afterward, after he passed, his daughter got a hold of me and said, my father adored you. Every time he came back from a show, you were running, ah, oh, Tommy Cairo. He could do whatever he wants. He could make it in his business. He could excel. You know, and you know, when you got Davey O'Hannon, Pete Reeves, Mike Cicluna, um, oh my God, it's endless of, of the guys that schooled you and led by example. Mm. You know what Davey O'Hannon said to me? He said, that door in, in Wildwood, it takes like four seconds to close. Make sure you go to the end of the first hallway and make a left where nobody can see you because you know what guys do? After they're carried out, as soon as they get through the threshold, they stand up regular and they start high-fiving each other. Do you know how many people see that because you don't know how long it takes for that door to close? Mm. Smart shit. Yep. You know what I mean? Detail. Stuff that, Detail. And in that Wildwood Convention Hall, I sat with Bruiser Brody on his last match before going to Puerto Rico where he was killed. Mm. And he said to me, bro, I want you to throw me out of the Battle Royal. Back in those days, I get thought out. staying in was the best thing. Right. After a while, you're like, you want to be the first one out because it's very easy to get hurt. People don't realize that they're not set up for any spots or bumps. Do not, you do that maybe when there's four guys left. Sure. But never when everybody's in so there. So maybe Miller Mascaris really did, though. No, Mascaris was that. a genius. Oh, I'm not winning? Toss me out, let's work. So here you are. You're, <laughs> on a, you're on a fast track in pro wrestling. You got the build. All the other wrestlers are representing you. That you got to start maybe thinking to yourself, look, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it in this. I'm going to be a big-time yeah. guy. Here comes ECW. How does that my start? My personal favorite company. Well, uh, first of all, I want to tell you that my wife asked me, what do you want to accomplish? I said, I want us to go to a, sh a couple shows every week, and I want to be booked, and all I want to do is break even, and I'll be happy because I'll be working towards my goal. Mm -hmm. I said, and, and 
listen, if we're home, we're going to go out and spend money anyway. Mm -hmm. So we'll spend money while we're there. You'll shop with the other girls. Like, you know, uh, um, Missy, I mean, uh, Peaches, you know, and my wife used to hang out, Mm -hmm. go to the Foreman Mills right next door to ECW Arena. All right, so um, I'm talking to uh, Pitbull, Gary Wolf, and I'm asking him about, you know, where I can get some work. And at the time, he couldn't, but he said, call this guy Todd Gordon. He's looking for some guys, and I think maybe you might be able to get some work. I called Todd, and he suggests that I go up to uh, a place somewhere in Pennsylvania where he had this uh, variety club, which was a home and a a summer program for kids with disabilities. And he said, "Uh, you know, I'll put you on. uh, You can work a match, and, you know, we'll go from there. So I said, can I bring somebody? To work with. He goes, absolutely, because I know I had a better shot working with somebody. So who did I bring but little Guido? Working little as Guido. He was working yes. as uh Damien Stone. Okay. <laughs> we go in there, build up uh no, that that building. Um, I said, listen, once we get out, I was already on the track of like shocking people. So I said, we gotta impress this guy. I said, so we'll spill out right in front of him and light me up and I'll light you up. Okay. Well, we got a standing ovation. Mm. Okay. So Todd books us for the Philadelphia Sports Club first pilot for ECW TV. Nice. We work a match. We get another standing ovation. He mentions it in the timeline when he said, "Yeah, we brought Tommy Cairo and Mar- and James. They 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 blew the house down." You know. So why didn't you feel that way later on? Because the wrong people came in. Todd is God. Is God? No. Todd's not God. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. So anyway, I'm in, okay? And it's early, early. Got the wolf man. Got uh, the kid that put the ring up. I forget his name. Larry Winters, where God rest his soul. Hitman Tony Stetson. You know, all the old guys. Glenn Osborne. You know, that whole old crew who was left behind after they built. We all, you know, uh, set the table and cooked the food. And they sat down to dinner. Were they bumped by Morocco and Snooker's arrival? I want to get the timeline right here. Yeah, um, they just, uh, as they added what would be considered more important talent, mm-hmm. yes, those guys started to pull by the wayside. But you, but you were still hanging in with that whole yeah. group. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. I was, I was doing great under right. Eddie Gilbert. <clears throat> Eddie Gilbert overheard a conversation between me and Hotbody, where Hotbody was claiming to be sick, and like he was worried about putting me over. And I just said whatever, and I knew I was just going to do what I was going to do. He pulled me aside, and he heard it. He goes, listen, we're investing in you, and we believe in you. And he said, you know, uh, if that happens again, you do one of two things. You ask for another opponent, or you kick his ass. Nice. And that's the only way it can go. And I was his steroid connection. And he Uh. picked out the biggest, most built guy and knew that he, I want what you're taking. You know right, what I mean? It was that right. kind of thing. Matter of fact, I have a can I have a check from him. I don't know, canceled check or whatever it was, made out to Tommy Cairo for X amount, and under note the note it says gear and wrestling gear. Right. Which was true. Um, I had to call him and, and threaten him. I said, "Bro, I need my fucking money." Sent it. Sent it in the mail. Came in the mail. But I was good under him. They gave me the Pennsylvania title, um, which they didn't continue. And then, next thing I know, there's a big fucking blow-up, and he, Eddie leaves, and now it's Paul Heyman. Mm-hmm. Well, it, Todd's with Eddie, though, at this time, right? Yes, but I heard behind 
the scenes, there was a, a discrepancy or there was an issue with, I believe, Eddie and possibly Todd's wife. Ooh. So that put Eddie on the outs. And then here comes conveniently, you know, Paul Heyman. Hi there. And here he is. Now, that night when that happened, Doug Gilbert, I mean, Paul Heyman and Todd Gordon are very lucky because he was on a warpath, turned tables over the whole nine yards. Then all of a sudden, they're gone. You know, and I was being touted as 12 different suplexes and whole nine yards. Well, who replaces me? It took two people to replace me, Taz and Tommy Dreamer. Right. So I'm going to get into Tommy Dreamer in one uh, second. Yeah. Todd Gordon's book's coming out. Um, from what I read, Gordon really trashes Heyman a bit from what I understand is going to happen in this book. Mm. Um, what was Todd, you know, you mentioned Todd has got bull crap. Tell me what Todd Gordon was really like in your opinion. Well, I don't want to be disrespectful and I do like Todd, but I have seen him in the last few years at some of these events. It looks like the same old shit's going on. Like, Meaning? These, these guys are, are strung out still. Like, Sandman, ridiculous. He doesn't deserve to be there. You know, I saw him exchange with a fan without ever looking at him. Take the money, sign a picture, push it over while talking. You know, just a bunch of jerk-offs. You know, not good people. Never progress beyond that time frame. They're still in that time they're frame. stuck in that moment, and they're not getting out. Yeah. Interesting. They're, they're still living in the past. I know Todd is not God. That's so freaking obvious, but is... Todd underappreciated or swept to the side because of Paul Heyman? I don't think so. I think So it's Paul Heyman at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's a failed promotion, and I see no reason why they, they, they make it such a big deal. And we're still talking about it. I love these. Well, because I think, I think, <laughs> I think I it, it. it was that, that outlaw company um, that I mean, people just hold gen, you know, close to their heart in some cases, right? Farrell loves ECW. Come, well, coming, I was not necessarily coming a fan. from coming from an East Coast, you know, WWF traditional. As right. we grew up, uh, Bruno went to Backland, into you know, obviously Hogan. ECW was like nothing I had ever been shown. Absolutely. And it was the best part was is it was on Sound Familiar, like the old Channel Nine midnight. Yeah. This thing was on super late. It felt like a little secret that I knew. The and only, boy, oh boy, did I love that. The only know? problem there is it's, it's overdone. Of okay? course. And when you got guys that they're heralding, like Shane Douglas talks as if he reinvented wrestling 10 times. The bottom line is he broke the cardinal rule, the first one. You don't go into business for yourself. And I mm -hmm. can give you more than one instance mm -hmm. where they did. Mm -hmm. And I was a part of it. No worker in a work choreographed situation should have to go in wondering whether or not there's something going on that they don't know about. Mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. did it to Dennis Coraluzzo, mm -hmm. who edited and, and gave more to this business by putting guys to work for years, okay? And he was a good guy, and he loved the business, and just because he was running in opposition across the, the river, Paul Heyman couldn't have that. And he, he did what he did maliciously. Well, Again, we're fans. We I don't know these insights. Yeah. What did he do? That whole thing with trashing the NWA belt. Mm -hmm. That was a work. Right. I mean, that was a that was a shoot. That right. A they shoot. didn't know that that was going to happen. Why Correct. would you do that? So he did Correct. that to destroy that other promotion. Exactly. Mm. Now the thing with 
angel, which I won't get into in depth unless she's sitting next well, to me. Well, I want to I slow down a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. we're going to get into that. But first I want to start, I want people to understand, right? You mentioned Tommy Dreamer before. I'm not a, I am personally not a fan of Tommy Dreamer. The Me wrestler, neither. the man, the beast, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call him. The least. But I think it's really important that people understand that the man sitting on his couch is, is really the originator of the hardcore Singapore yes. cane match. That and, he has and, stolen, and, and Paul, by the way. And Paul Heyman. Yeah. rewrote history. So please tell me about your relationship with Tommy Dreamer before Heyman comes in and, and afterwards. Okay. And what I, I really have to tell you is how the whole thing with the Singapore Canes started. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Go ahead. Um, so um, what was the, your question was, I'm sorry. So it was basically, you're the originator, right? Yes. You're the originator. Right. Well, here's, here's, here's what happened. So Michael Fay. American gets goes to Singapore, gets caned for whatever he did over there, and Paul Heyman gets this idea to run a program with volunteers, hopefully, to um, work off of the Singapore cane. Okay, so in the locker room he addresses everybody, and basically asking for volunteers, and he explains beforehand that there will be, you know, color needs to be gotten, and it won't be just your head. So if that's an issue for you, don't even volunteer. Well. The place went dead. Nobody raised their hands. I made eye contact with Hack, and both our hands went up. Because we were friendly, smoked pot together, our wives would hang out previous. So after the, the, uh, the, the meeting ended, people came up to us and said, like, well, what are you going to do, anything he asks? This is because nobody had drank the Kool-Aid yet. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. They were, like, putting us down. Right. Well, those same guys are still living off that fucking thing that we started. So it was me and Sandman who said yes, and that program ran for a full year. A year of this. But yet they skipped the Tommy Dreamer as if he's the one that started the whole revolution. Is there anything you'd like to say to Tommy Dreamer directly? Well, the thing about Tommy Dreamer is I may have given him the benefit of the doubt in my head, but when I saw that thing about the plane ride from hell and, like, he's backing up this asshole Ric Flair who's out there acting like a jerk-off, He's been manipulating and, and been a sexual predator for years, uh, and it's gone un, unchecked, and it's not right. And you have a daughter? No wonder why you're fucking divorced. You got a daughter, and you backed up to say, oh, that's Rick. Fuck that. It's Rick Flair. Doesn't make it right. I'm against it. It needs to be straightened out. You know, just like all these years, the rats, the rats. You know what? That's a bad thing. And if it still goes on, there's girls, you know, uh, too young for that, and there should be somebody monitoring it. And I have a whole fucking system to how that could be done. You know, it really needs to be addressed. It's been going on for years. And many girls, women's lives are ruined. And if you could visit those girls who were, were put through that, I can tell you that their story will be miserable. I believe we've interviewed... Uh... So your, 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 <laughs> a girl your that partner, you had that kind of partner, experience. So. Angel Amorosa came on, and she named you know quite a few uh, sexual predators. One being Bobby Fulton. Yep. Uh, another one being Dominic Danucci. Yeah. And uh, and then saying accusing Mick Foley and uh, oh. Tommy Dreamer of sexually abusing her in the ring. Another actually, ch- another couple of charmers. What do you know about that? And you know, is this maybe Angel? Uh, embellishing or is this real no if you read what i read you would know it's kind of like come some of my stories 
the first impression you get is that ain't made up because you would have to have some fucking mind to come up. She's got dates, times, everything. And it's really graphic and I was not, I'll not be the same. It's like I tell people, young kids, don't look to conquer everything because you, there's shit that you can't unsee, you know, will affect you for the rest of your life. And that's, that was added to the list of things that will affect me for the rest of my life. Um, here's what I know. Nobody could handle me one-on-one in that locker room. Nobody. And I'm leaving out my friends. Teddy, the Pitbulls. I'm leaving them out. Right. Nobody else. Paul Heyman would love to have fired me. Why wouldn't he? He didn't have the balls to fire me. So he let me stay there, tried to bury me, which I didn't let happen. If you've seen when he put the Mike, was it uh, uh, Chad, uh, Chad Austin out there, when he told Chad that he was going over, Tad was like, Tommy's going to fucking kill me. He's like a main guy. And all of a sudden, I'm going over. Well, I gave him a beat, and I threw him from one end of the ring to the other. And then I had a misstep where I landed. He put his feet on the ropes, and he pinned me. Any goofy gimmick they gave me, I made it work. They wanted me to be a construction worker because I looked badass. I had the biker, uh, you know, do-rag. I had a full, you know, leathers, you know, and I looked the part. That was too much for them. I had to build. I looked the part. But why wouldn't Paul want to use you then, right? You, you had the look. You had everything. Why would he say, no, this isn't the guy was I want? Was it politics? No. Like you didn't... He knew by just by how I carried myself that I wasn't going to drink the Kool-Aid and I wasn't going to be up for what he had planned. You know, this guy's going to be a problem. But I got nobody to send out there to do anything. I don't have the balls to do it. And I only left because I couldn't fucking walk. And part of that is Tommy Dreamer. Uh, here's what's crazy. We're in this, like, I don't know, it's me, uh, Hack, it's uh, Cactus, it's Dreamer. So Dreamer's supposed to, like, dive out on us. But you got to make connection with me at some point when we're out on the floor so we know you're coming. Right. You just can't come. He just comes. So in the middle of us still dealing with somebody else, we got to catch Tommy Dreamer. Right. And on another occasion, when I did a spin kick on the floor, which is he's on one corner, I'm on the other. I run towards him, and I jump up, and I spin. The way to catch the person is you kind of catch his leg, and you fall back. He put his hands up which I ricocheted and landed on my tailbone, mm. which is, I'm, I'm crippled because... So are you, trying to, are you trying to say that Tommy Dreamer was in on it with Paul Heyman and was trying to run you out? Um, yeah, they had to talk about it. Do you know what uh, he said, uh, what, what um, Heyman said to uh, Angel when um, he said, we're going to poke you, you know, maybe with the stick? And she said, you know, uh, be careful. And he said, why? It's already fucked up down there. Really? Can you imagine? That's crazy. Okay. Dreamer said this. No, Heyman. Heyman. Now, here's what happened. I'm selling... Uh, first of all, know this. When I asked Angel why it was going on, and I didn't know about it, why didn't you tell me? She goes, your daughter was just newly born, and I knew that you would end up in jail because I know you. So she, like, kept that from me, knowing I would have fucking straightened that. I would have stopped their party in a heartbeat. I didn't walk through the back entrance. I didn't deal with these guys after the matches. I, I had a wife I was loyal to. I didn't, wasn't snorting coke off of hookers' asses. That's fucking ridiculous. When you have one girl, especially underage, and multiple guys in one room, you're half a fag. You're half a fag. What guy in his right mind wants to double-team a girl? I don't want to see your dick, bro. That's gay. You better question your fuck. You might as well have another guy in there then. 
And you can all do whatever you want to do. But nobody I know is going to be affected by that. Okay? But the fact that she didn't tell me. So I'm selling, right, outside the ring. What was supposed to happen was Cactus was supposed to do the last maneuver to her and go bang, bang. And then Dreamer, unscripted, comes in and pokes her in. I didn't see any of this. I'm outside. Mm. Mm. Now, when that happens and you're in the ring and it's not something you talked about, you trust the people to say, well, oh, well, we had to live sometimes. I'll roll with it. No one should ever expect to be get hurt behind a worked choreographed. Guys, it's not a fucking shoot. Don't you get it? Going into business for yourselves and not telling everybody what you were going to do is the first rule that you don't break, which means to me you're not even welcome in this fucking community. Did, did Dreamer ever come to you and say, hey, look, Tommy, you got a lot of talent, but you need to play Heyman's game? Nope. They knew it. I saw a video, and Terry Funk was like this, listening to Heyman on the steps. I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Some kid came to me at a convention. A lot of people will say stuff that I did that I, I don't remember. He said, I remember you screaming in a locker room, this is bullshit. This ain't the way wrestling's supposed to be. He goes, you didn't give a shit. When somebody doesn't have the balls to fire you or send somebody after you, you can do anything you want. You can act however you want. I, I remember on our friends at Busted Open Radio, I remember someone had called our in. friends? And uh, Tommy Dreamer was <laughs> on, and they said that they wear a Tommy Cairo shirt. And that's how I, that's when I first started to know you a little bit. And I thought it was like, oh, nice pop. But I, Dreamer's reaction was very strange. Like, he tried to foo-foo it and move on. Of course. And, um... So we're basically saying Tommy Dreamer is not who he presents himself to be. No, and look what he did on the Plane Right from Hell interview. Mm -hmm. Like I said, mm -hmm. you're a father of a daughter, and you can sit there and say it's okay? I think Ric Flair is a fucking disgrace. You're still cutting your head at this age? Are you fucking kidding me? Like my wife said to me when I was going to a local show, because it was in my town, you know, to help them out. And she says to me before I leave, don't do anything stupid. I said, like, what? She goes, like, cut yourself. I go, honey, I'm not going to cut myself. So guess what I did? Got together with the young kids. All the older guys that knew my wife wanted no part of it. Right. They don't want Mrs. Cairo. Right. Because she'll fucking come down and bust your neck. So, she, so I, they said, let's get a piece of tape. Get a red marker. And we'll put the tape over your head. And we'll just put, like, little dots like it bled through. Bro, it looks so fucking real. So I come home. It's like a quarter to 11. My wife's like, oh, you're home early. I said, yeah. She goes, how did it go? I said, listen, come down and I'll tell you about it. She gets halfway down the stairs. She spots the bandage. She goes up and she says, you idiot. She runs upstairs. It took me everything to get her to come back down so I could rip it off and show her it wasn't real. Mm. She goes, you got me. So for these, this guy to still be out there, number one, like, why are you wrestling? Okay. And why are you cutting your head? And why are you a sexual predator and a piece of shit? And why do so many people overlook that? Okay. Well, I'm here to tell you I'm not one of those guys. The only way I could be a different guest than most of what you had is how if I could tell my full story because I trump everybody in every category. And I challenge anybody to have a discrepancy, you know, to d d disagree. Come on. Make a call. Tell me why I'm not what I say I am. So... You leave, Paul Heyman runs you out, right? 
When when do you start getting involved in the drugs? When does that act go out of control? Because you seem like you have everything under control. Here you got this bodybuilder. Now you're this great wrestler. When do the drugs hit and when do the well, drugs get out of control? Uh, I was highly functional. A constitution like no other. That's why I sit here today. Like, uh, you could take two, I take five, and I drive you home. That kind of thing. And to go home and rearrange my sock drawer. Like, I just had a constitution. It took... Tons of anything uh, to really, you know, knock me out. I never, like, passed out from anything. No, going back, here's a guy that refused to do any drugs and maybe yeah. smoked one joint. Now you're becoming a heavy pill head, right? Yeah, well, I would say that started before, way before wrestling. That started when I discovered a thing called Doradin and Codeine, which is, uh, in our high school, we had a, um, a parking lot. It was called the courts. That's where the basketball courts were. It was an open-air drug market that the cops wouldn't even go in. And, like, you would, at any given night, all cars parked different ways and who had what. And we experimented with everything. But that was in my very early years. But I learned to control it. And I never really, like, when I would go to people who knew me and say, like, you know, I think I got a little issue. I got a, they're like, you fucking do everything. You work, do for your family. You work. You need an electrician. You wrestle. You're a... A, a bouncer, you're like, you do everything. You're fine. I never got anybody said, yeah, you know what? I think you're right. So maybe you should. So I didn't do anything or look for any help. Um, no effect. Then, no effect on your marriage or. Oh you know, uh, yes, it had an effect on. My okay. Marriage. Okay. So you you do become a full time addict though, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. So do you reflect back now and like Jimmy said, you know, it affected your wife. It affected your kids. Um, is that the biggest regret you have? Uh, yes, it is. But what I say is this. I was abused, uh, and I felt like um, the only reason I've ever done any drugs in my life was to self-medicate because uh, I couldn't stop my mind from the worrying, Ooh. from, you know, regrets, the whole nine yards. And mm. I said to my wife, uh, there was a T.D. Jakes. You know who T.D. Jakes is? Yeah. Okay. He talked about the person. So my wife said to me, this has been 30 years of torture, and I've had enough. We'll stay together, but emotionally, this is after uh, my stint in a hospital with this mm -hmm. leg. There were mm -hmm. some things that occurred. Um, so to me, it was survival. Like, I look at her and I go, I was only trying to survive. If I hurt you in the meantime... I didn't mean it. I was protective of you. You never had to worry about, you know, me cheating on you. Mm. The biggest thing was I had a drug problem. Mm. Had it mostly under control, but she knew about it. My wife is so well-schooled. Here's what happened. I had something that I shouldn't have had at the hospital, and I had it in my beard bum tin. Do you know she found it? Mm. I came out of a, we stopped at a wrestling show where Sonny and Chris were. I had my young daughter and my wife with me. Doc Diamond, who used to run all the shows, he put a couple of Xanax in my top pocket. Do you know we went to get ice cream and my wife stuck her hand in my pocket? She just knew, like I knew when I worked in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, if a couple of guys that are partying for the weekend and check in and they want their room double locked, which means only me, security, could open it when they came back, nobody else could get in, like housekeeping and look around. As Soon as they left, I went right up in their room and I made two moves. One to the jacket pocket on the back of the chair. There's the Coke. And right in it, open up that drawer. There's the weed. That's where you roll the weed. Mm. I took all their weed and I took all their Coke. And when they came back and said, can we, you know, can you unlock the room for us? Sure. 
I go up, I wait a couple minutes, I go, everything all right? They go, yeah. What are they going to do? Right. Say somebody stole our drugs? So it was like instinct, and my wife picked up on that, and I got caught out there, and she said, that's enough. I can't, and the doctor, who was very laid back, said, you know, you tested positive for so-and-so, and, and, uh, you know, that's not going to help you. That's all he said. He wouldn't freak out. Oh, my God. How could you do this? You know, so that set me, that set me back a little bit because I'm like, now I'm fighting for my marriage, you know? Um, so T.D. Jake said this. If you feel like you've been tortured, you've got to stop for a minute because the other person doesn't get off the hook, okay? He, that other person, is dying inside from guilt, and, and, and the more you reflect on the past, the more it hurts him. So really, you're doing the same thing. Two wrongs don't make a right. You know, the cycle should be stopped. I tried to stop it. I had that miserable Italian gene. Grandfather, father, um, grandfather, uncle, um, and my mother all had that, like, nothing makes them happy. Always screaming, always miserable, always looking at the, the negative side. And, you know, I had to fight that my whole life. But, I, but do, you, do you see your wife's side of it? Sure I do. But you have to understand, all of this was under the cloak of darkness and trying to survive. I never stopped to think, oh, that's fucked up, you did that. I don't know, I never did. Now I, I know it was fucked up. But I am such a good father, and I think a husband, you know, to this day, if I'm driving with my wife and she's in front of me, where she has to be, because if she gets stuck, I can't be ahead of her, right? I always scoot ahead of her and pay a toll for her. And right. a person asks, like, what? She says, I don't know, my husband has always done that. I learned that as a kid, and, you know, he'll wave her on, and it makes me <clears> feel good. I'm still treating my wife like she's special. Mm -hmm. You know, and I still do that. I tell her how wonderful she is, and I'm really trying. And I sent her that clip, and I said, that's where I'm at, okay? So consider that as I continue to try to be a better person and treat you. Um, I think the man's biggest dilemma is he's always bigger. A lot of guys are bigger outside of the home mm. than they are in the home. In the home, you think my son gives a crap about my wrestling career? The only reason... He acknowledges it because my nephews find out, and they're like, oh, they mimic the, uh, me and uh, Angel. You know, get up off your feet, rise and pay homage to my new manager, the Virgin Princess Angel. They know that, you know, word for word. Mm. So, you know, there's, my son won't get, he gets excited when somebody says, oh, your dad's Tommy Cairo, teachers and whoever, you know. Um, and my wife is so amazed that it never ceases to amaze her how we'll be somewhere somebody will come out of nowhere and like recognize me or sure. know me from another arena because i've done so many things and the feedback is that i was always a good guy when i didn't know i was i thought i was so you know fo focused that i w didn't help anybody or didn't and i got people that told me no you stopped your workout and taught me how to do my biceps and then went, went right back like you never he said you helped us and we were in awe of you all the kids from that era that were in a gym, it takes a, a, a village to raise a child, it takes a gym to raise a champion. Mm. And those guys refer to that as the year that Cairo won the jersey. That's a compliment. I'm flattered by that, you know? And it's still talked about to this day. So I want you to, because uh, we're, we're coming to a close, I want you to tell the people out there 
what your future goals are here. Uh, you were telling us off air, and then we'll hit you with the Pharaoh's final question. So sure. go ahead. All right, well, what I want to do is uh, the years that I have left, whatever they are, you know, in my head, I'm a realist, not, not, a, not, not a pessimist. I'm thinking if I make 80, I'll be happy. That's 15 years. I know now, the Lord put it on my heart, you can't, and I had this before, but I didn't follow through. You cannot leave this earth until you help the very industry that you love and, and, and had endeavored in, and that's pro wrestling. Everybody that could help the business is still in front of the camera. You know who they are. I don't have to name them. Get your asses behind the scenes because it's a fucking mess, okay? The only way this wrestling business can be saved, and I outlined it in a thing called the Ironclad Project, which is you have to reestablish your territories. The problem with what they did was they tried to create territories by calling them developmental. That's the first mistake. It sounds less than, mm -hmm. okay? So you have to develop these with trainers that teach a different style than each other. So when we, we start these little promotions around the country in different areas, it has to be a different style. Because we don't want everybody coming in doing the same thing. When you, did you ever watch the match between, um, uh, what's his name? English guy. Um, well, Pitt Finlay. And who's the, the English guy? Uh, shooter. Um, damn. Anyway, that's, you know, Lord, we, we got it. Yeah, I can't remember. But to fix the industry, we have to reestablish. And no one from the big two can accept someone out of school or out of a territory unless they've gone through these accredited and approved schools. And we want to know that if, you know, whoever it is out there that's a wrestling legend that is doing the training, he can't pass it off on somebody else. We want to know he's involved in overseeing the training because that's the only way the kids are going to get the benefit. If you get, who's your trainer over there at, um, give me somebody's name, Austin Idols Wrestling School. Oh, his name is James Smith. Well, who's he? Oh, he was a guy. Well, what's his working name? Well, he didn't really work. What? Mm. So he's training you? I'll give you this. <clears throat> I've seen guys who could do that and do the, you know, the drills and all that. But who's teaching you the psychology and the ring etiquette and how you act and how you treat people, how you introduce yourself when you come in, how you come clothed, do you look decent? You know, how's your gear? You know, is your ring work sloppy? Can you lock up solidly? You know? Uh, are you sending a guy only partially across the ring? He's got to run himself the rest of the way, which is fucking stupid. You know, do you, are you waiting for three minutes for the guy to get to the top rope and you're not doing anything to sell what he gave you last, which is what he should have pinned you with in the first place? Mm. Going to the top rope is ridiculous. Mm. I would say, if I see you, grab the guy's head, pull it up to you, and you put your head down and you talk to him, you'll never work here again. Mm. How do you do that? And you're doing it right at the camera. Right. Okay, if you can't growl and talk, check him, rev. He's got the tights. Two tackles, drop down, leapfrog, hip toss. You got it? Two tackles, drop down, leapfrog, hip toss. Very simple. And I've had guys, we do that in, in, in sections. Now he's got me in a corner, and it's a perfect time. You know, you lay into me, you tell me a joke, you tell me the second part of the joke the next time. I used to have that happen. Sal Baloma. Okay? So the wrestling business needs to be fixed. And it's going to take 10 years. And it's going to be an investment. 
but uh, they have to have, you have to come out of a school that was approved. That's the only way we know. And we have a certain criteria. And as soon as you break that criteria, you get one warning and then you're gone. And we won't call them developmental. It's just a territory. That's it. We don't even have, nobody even has to know that, it, that it's connected to either of whoever's the big two at the time. Because if you look at the lineage that they have behind the scenes at AEW, you would have to say to yourself, there's no way Tony Khan is letting them run the show. He's running the show, something like Paul and uh, Vince have done, where they only do what makes them happy and makes them giggle, whether it's good for the business or not. That's not what you do. You're supposed to make decisions that are good for the business and to help your people, not bury them. If you're going to try to bury them, just fucking fire them. Don't try to bury them. Give them a chance when they get to the next area. You know, um, so it's a, long, it's a long haul, but if anybody's interested, uh, I'll run a, a halfway house training center. I got a CADC in drug addiction counseling. Um, I know I could go out to shows and find those guys that are floundering, that will be, let's get them ahead of time, before they're the next person to die. Okay, you mean he said that to you and it didn't make you think that maybe you should check wellness check? I do wellness checks on my people just like they do on me. How you doing? I haven't seen you, I haven't heard from you. What's going on? And if they start ducking your calls, you know you got to go check on them. Nobody's doing that. They're too busy putting themselves over. Time, we're tired of seeing you. Your time is done. If you're such a genius in wrestling, go behind the scenes and fix this mess. Tell Tony Khan we're not staying unless you let us run the show. Got Arn Anderson back there. The problem is Arn Anderson's getting guys put in front of him that can't work, that don't know the business, that don't know what's right and wrong. They're coming out of schools. You know, back in the day that trained all the guys that were in the golden era, there was only four or five places you could go. You can go to Vern Gagne. You can go to Ed Sharkey. You could go to Guy Woody Farmer in California. You could go to Stu Hart. But they were all closed. You had to have an in. And all the training was done to the right level, teaching everybody the right way. Then all of a sudden, and, and they would force anybody out who tried to open up who didn't have the credentials. That had started to have, when those guys died. Now, everybody's got a school. Everybody's a, a trainer. I don't even know who these guys are. Never heard of them. So if you're of being trained by someone you can't trace back or you've been trained and you're at a show and they're asking you to do something that doesn't sound right according to the pedigree of your training you check your pedigree against the guy who's telling you to the promoter that's asking you to do and you say either get on the phone because you have a phone now and they want me to do this no definitely don't do it or i know enough by my training and this is who trained me if you could trump him his name then, you know, I'll do what you, if not, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And this is what I'd like to do. Because evidently, I, I might know a little bit more than you and I can help you, you know. Well, we, we, we should start promoting that for sure. Yeah. All right, Farrow's final question. Wow. Okay. Actually, I actually have a couple, but I'm going to try to just stick with one. Uh, you mentioned Rocco, obviously. What was your thoughts when uh, Mr. Simmons and Mr. Bradshaw decided to take liberties on the public enemy? I thought, uh, well, did they really? Because it certainly didn't look that bad to me. Well, to the fans, I mean, to this, to, right, Mike? I mean, to this yep. day, they all, you know, they, they say, and they, they themselves say that they, uh, you know. Well, I know this. Johnny was a so-so tough guy, but Teddy was the real deal. 
He could have handled either, easily either one of those guys. No problem. So they got away with one there. Yeah, and I think it's terrible that, uh, you know, even Paul Heyman, he never, ever, you know, uh, talked about any of Teddy's legit background and just kind of made him seem like he was a nobody, which is, I don't know why. I really don't know why. I don't even know why he had a problem with me. I believe that he knew right away, this guy ain't going to be with the program. Mm. Okay? I walk and talk it. You know? I'm not in for no bullshit. I'm here to do a job. Angel and I got this snuff from Sal Ballone. We brought it back from wherever. It's uh, brown tobacco, fine. And you snort it. Well, they turned that into their snorting heroin in the locker room. Meanwhile, they, they went on to do way more shit than anybody, and it wasn't true. It was mm. fucking tobacco. I never was in an ECW ring compromised, ever. Period. Okay? Just didn't do it. I always waited, and I got far from the arena all on my way home, you know, smoked my joint or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was no real hard drugs at the time. There was a few pills <clears throat> here and there. You know, at one point, yeah, it, it, got, it got out of hand, but it never... Ruled me. I had one real bad thing that happened to me coming back from bouncing at Trump Plaza in Atlantic City. You know, it's unfortunate that it happened. And my wife said the only, I was, the phrase was coined with me, walking overdose in Atlantic City Hospital. Okay. That's a story for, you know I'm going to have to come back. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, and, I, and I have some things that I, I want to talk about that um, have led me, you know, to the point in my life where I had to make the changes, and it was not that long ago. <laughs> mm. yeah. I was still in trouble a short time ago. But that's been the story. Of, like, I would tell the story that's outrageous, you know, to people that know me, and they go, yeah, of course. <laughs> mm. They would say, uh, someone told another guy, Cairo, with those big hands in my face, smoke, smoke, <laughs> or commandeering somebody's coke because they still had it. I'm like, you're still snorting that? You pussy, give it to me. And I would commandeer their bag right. and snort it because that's how I was. I was like out of control with almost anything. Well, I got to tell you, you lived the life of uh, many people here. Yep. We got to have you back on for part two for sure. Yes. Unfortunately, we can't go on because this could go on for, but there's so many questions, man, for sure. Oh, yeah. I got to tell you, you are a... Uh, I think you're a hero to a lot of people. You've uh, you, you're a walking example of uh, our true testament to perseverance. A survivor, that's for sure. For sure. Perseverance, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's a better word. Yep. All right. So we'll see everybody next this Saturday, 11 a.m. JoJo from Big Brother. All righty. Farrell, you want to send us away? But again, thank you, Mr. Thank Cairo. You, Tommy. You're welcome. You uh, are a legend. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you again, Tommy. You've been watching Monty and the Pharaoh. And until Saturday? Saturday. We will see you then. Later.